I realized there had to be another way. Out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of Benal of America Audio Season 2. It is December 23rd, 2006, and this is the Benal of America Audio Season 2 Christmas Special. As it was last year, so shall it be again this year. Our guest is a living legend in esoterica and the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. If you're like me and you've heard countless Stan Friedman interviews, this is the third time I've interviewed him myself. So I knew if we were going to make this a holiday tradition here on Banal of America Audio, we had to go above and beyond your average Stan Friedman interview. We're going to discuss pre-modern day ufology, what got Stan interested in UFOs in the first place, the evolution of his speaking on flying saucers from a part-time side hobby to a full-time career, all the twists and turns along that road, and some of the key individuals and events that played a role in Stan Friedman becoming the father of modern-day ufology. From there, we're going to discuss the 1968 congressional investigation into UFOs that he contributed to. We're going to talk about an event that occurred just a few months after that, the release of the Condon Report. What was the mood like in ufology at the time? What was the immediate effect on the field when the infamous Condon Report was released? Stan was there. He was on the front lines. He's going to talk about what it was like during that tumultuous period. We're going to discuss the infamous NICAP vs. APRO feud. Where were the similarities and differences between the two groups? What were some of the sticking points and disagreements? Stan was in the mix at the time. He dealt with both organizations. He's going to tell us some great stories about his dealings with NICAP and APRO. Additionally, we're going to have some big picture discussion on the All of America audio staple topic of young people in ufology. Why aren't they gravitating towards the field? And what does ufology need to do to attract young people to the study of the UFO phenomenon? Stan will offer his thoughts on this pressing problem within ufology. Plus, of course, as is the case here on BOA Audio, tons and tons more. This episode is rich in detail and is a veritable history lesson in ufology. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, first I pity you, and now I will give you a little bit of background on him. Stanton T. Friedman received BS and MS degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas, on such advanced, classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish Star Map case, analysis of the Delphos, Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate, cultists. 
He's the author of the books Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study on the Roswell incident. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com, S-T-A-N-T-O-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Enough of my yakking, let's boogie. This interview was recorded on December 7th, 2006. Stanton Friedman on the Banal of America Audio, Season 2, Christmas Special. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Last year, we had a very special guest on for the holiday episode, and I wanted to do the same thing again this year. He is the author of Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident. He needs no introduction. He is the father of modern-day ufology, and he's back here on Banal of America Audio. Stanton Freeman, welcome back to the show. Glad to be on again, uh, as long as you're not calling me the grandfather. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to get you back on the show, and I wanted to sort of discuss... Let's call it sort of like the Stanton Freeman early years, if you will, or the pre-Roswell period. And uh, what I really found interesting uh, when I was doing a little research for this interview was that you started in 1958. That's when you first ordered that book uh, that kind of started the whole snowball rolling downhill on the UFO investigation. Yeah. And, of course, in 1978, 20 years later, is when you heard about the Roswell incident. And it's really interesting that you had 20 years in the UFO field before you even discovered Roswell, but you sort of typecast as the Roswell guy, so that must be kind of kind of rough. So hopefully in this interview we can uh, talk about that pre-Roswell period. Okay. And uh, actually I heard something about Roswell in the early 70s when I spoke with Lydia Sleppy who had had a good sighting in Albuquerque. We got to her, a colleague and I, from her son, who was a forest ranger in California, who had a good sighting, said, after he told us about his uh, report, that he uh, really ought to talk to my mom. She had a great sighting in Albuquerque. So uh, Bobby Ann Slate Gerondo, who's no longer with us, and I uh, talked to Lydia, and she told us about her sighting, but also mentioned that when she was at a radio station in Albuquerque, she worked there. They had a call from their affiliate in Roswell who said that a saucer had crashed and was being sent to Wright Patterson, Wright Field, he actually said, I guess. Hmm. And uh, he wanted her to, she wasn't a journalist, she was an accountant actually, but uh, she handled the typing and stuff. And uh, the guy said, uh, you know, please put this out on the wire, newswire. So he started to dictate and she's typing and uh, their bell rings, and there's a message comes up on the uh, stuff she's typing that do not continue this transmission, FBI. Now, I know some people get very upset. What do you mean the FBI wasn't monitoring stuff? Well, if they were going to monitor anything anywhere, it would certainly be New Mexico. Two yeah. nuclear weapons labs, uh, White Sands Missile Range, uh, the formerly secret city Roswell, Roswell Los Alamos. Uh, Kirtland was the largest employer in the state. Uh, counterintelligence was a major concern there. And as it turns out, they were right, of course. The Soviets did have spies at Los Alamos, uh, two of whom got executed, as a matter of fact, uh, for treason. Anyway, uh, so I talked to her, and she gave me a couple of names, the best she could remember at that time. Uh, you know, we're going back to 47, and this yeah. is about 72, 73. And... It came to a halt. I mean, I did find a couple of people, and a couple remembered something, a couple others remembered nothing, and where do I go from here? So that was the end of that. But that sort of primed me for when I talked to Jesse Marcel in 78. But you're certainly right that a lot of people think uh, Roswell's what got me started and so forth, and not at all. 
and a little history before that, and uh, it, it's important only because people have the wrong impression about who's interested in UFOs and who are you talking to and all this. I've seen some of the noisy negativist garbage about me uh, uh, making it sound, you know, really out in left field somewhere. Yeah. The point is that I read Edward Ruppelt's book, uh, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, back in 58, and it intrigued me. It didn't convince me. I shared it with a neighbor. He was even more... Uh, he was an engineer 10 years older than I was. I was only 24 at the time. That shows you how long ago it was. And uh, Charlie was an engineer 10 years older, and he was more impressed than I was. And we each moved uh, our own way. He went. He was, worked in Connecticut. I moved to California. I had a good librarian in California. I read another 15 books or so, some of which were trash. And if I'd read them first, I'd have never read another book. And then... <laughs> What really uh, sparked me was finding at the University of California Berkeley Library a copy of Project Blue Book's Special Report 14. This was a privately published copy, and it hadn't been mentioned in any of these 15 books that I had read. And holy cow, I was in data heaven, 240 charts, tables, graphs, maps. And what really got my attention was that the guy, Leon Davidson, who'd had this published, he's no longer with us either, uh, had included the press release that went out in October 1955 about this study. And what was shocking, because I'd been looking at the data, was that there was this infamous lie from the Secretary of the Air Force. Now, I should stress that I'd been working on classified programs, so I was accustomed to sometimes you got to be a little careful about what you say. You may skirt the truth. You try to avoid lying, etc. Mm -hmm. Here was a flat-out statement from the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Quarles, who said, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Now, that would seem to put the rest to anything exciting about flying saucers. The only trouble was, having looked at the data, the charts, the tables, it turns out that the unknowns were 21.5%, seven times greater than we were told by the Secretary of the Air Force, and that they were completely separate from the ones that were listed as insufficient information. That was about 10%. So rather than putting the kibosh on the good sightings, he highlighted them, except nobody would know that if they didn't have the report and they didn't distribute the report and they didn't include any of the data. They put out a summary with it, and it doesn't include any of the data from those 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. Yeah. Now, this thing distressed me because, you know, here's a flat-out lie from the Secretary of the Air Force, and I wasn't anti-Air Force, so... The aircraft nuclear propulsion program that I was working on when I first read Ruppelt's book was co-sponsored by the Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission. You know, it was a big program. We were spending $100 million a year at General Electric in 1958 on aircraft nuclear propulsion systems. I mean, you know, 3,500 people full-time, 1,100 of them engineers and scientists. So I mention this only because I notice Wikipedia gives me credit for working only on paper studies. I was spending a lot of their money, boy. Yeah. 
at Oak Ridge and at Fort Convair, Fort Worth, and so forth, and all kinds of other people. We actually operated jet engines on nuclear power, I might add. Oh, wow. It was hardware. Uh, sure, the work was classified, but it wasn't a black program. The sign at the door said aircraft nuclear propulsion. And so that finding that report really sparked my great interest, and I joined APRO and NICAP, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, to get their, their newsletters. They were sort of uh, battling with each other, a little bit of feuding kind of. Uh, remember, NICAP at one time had 14,000 members, so it, it grew large. That was Major yeah. Donald Kehoe primarily. And uh, so I joined those groups, and th this really got me intrigued. I talked to colleagues at lunch when we brown-bagged it. I was working on fusion propulsion systems for deep space travel. This was at Aerojet General Nucleonics in what was uh, the walnut orchards of San Ramon, California. Now it's wall-to-wall housing. <laughs> but... Um, I talked to colleagues and so forth, and I joined the groups, and I even wrote uh, Amy Michelle, a French researcher whose books were important to me, asking him for advice on how to get involved, and I obviously didn't take his advice because what he said was he recommended not getting involved. It's too much trouble. Oh, obviously, wow. I didn't listen. <laughs> and then uh, I moved to Indianapolis to work for General Motors Corporation. It was Aerojet General Nucleonics in California. General Motors had a contract from the Atomic Energy Commission to look at military compact reactors. And this was an interesting idea. You know, you have a problem with where do you get fuel for your tanks and your trucks and all that out on the battlefield. Why don't we put together a reactor that you can take apart, fly in, and you can produce ammonia from uh, basically air, which has nitrogen in it, and water, and you can run military vehicles on ammonia, which you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem, of course, my work was in radiation shielding primarily, and shielding was an important part of the weight. So you do have to protect people when you're assembling and disassembling this nuclear reactor. So I was in charge of the shielding work, and I kept my interest in UFOs, again, talked to people. We worked in a closed area with a guard at the door because it was high security. And uh, I didn't find out until I left the company that there were some people upset when I posted the nightcap bulletin, <laughs> bulletin board. But I got to know Frank Edwards. Mm -hmm. uh, I was active in the Hemophilia Foundation chapter of Indianapolis. My son's a hemophiliac, and we were sponsoring a, a fundraising dinner. And because Frank was on the board of NICAP, he was a newsman, he had a big radio program yeah. and so forth. And so I convinced him to give a talk, you know, for charitable benefits and so forth. So I got to know him a bit. And then he wrote his book, Flying Saucer's Serious Business, which became a bestseller. And I had moved on to Pittsburgh to work for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab on nuclear rocket engines, which we also built and successfully tested on the ground. And again, shielding was my bag. As you can imagine, anything that involves weight and nuclear heating and stuff like that would be significant. Yeah. Anyway, Frank sent me a copy of his book. I introduced him. We had him speak for our group in Pittsburgh. But... I read the book, and I decided, you know, it's time for me to do something. 
So I contacted Frank and said, hey, you got any names? Uh, because he traveled a lot and because his book was so successful, he knew everybody in the media business. And he sent me some names. And one of them was a producer at a radio show called Contact, not the book, <laughs> by Carl Sagan later on. Uh, and it was on KDKA Pittsburgh, which is the oldest, one of the biggest and oldest radio stations uh, east of the Mississippi, 50,000-watt clear channel, et cetera. They had a big audience, especially at night. And it was one of those, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. Okay. So a month or so later, I get a call from them. Uh, Gee, could you be on our program tonight at 7 o'clock? It was 6.30, you understand. (laughs) Somebody had canceled, and I was probably number eight on their list of people to call. But I didn't live far from the station. So I said, sure, why not? And I went on the program, and somebody at work, a woman technician, had a book review club, and Frank's book was their book that month. And they asked me if I would give a talk in her living room about flying saucers. That was my first lecture. And uh, I did the talk show a number of times after that, did the chicken and peas circuit. You know, everybody wants free programs. <laughs> <laughs> and then and my talk title then was Flying Saucers Are Real. I'm still using that title. I don't make it UFOs are real because all flying saucers are UFOs. Very few UFOs are flying saucers. Yeah. And I'm interested in the flying saucers, not in the UFOs. Mm-hmm. But then something happened, uh, I don't know what to call it, coincidence. One of two days that I rode to work, I live in downtown Pittsburgh. Westinghouse was out in one of the suburbs called Large, a small town, (laughs) Uh, with Joanne. She was a Ph.D., a supervisor at Westinghouse, and she lived in town as well. And my car was in a garage, so I needed a ride. And I'm telling her, gee, I'd like to speak at Carnegie Tech, which later became Carnegie Mellon University. And she said, well, why don't you talk to the dean? I said, well, I called Dr. So-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. Why don't you give him a call? Well, okay, why not? (laughs) (laughs) So I called, and uh, he said, sure, I'd love to have you speak. And we wound up setting a date uh, in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, then he asked me, uh, how much do you want? Well, I figured i got to take a half day off work here, and, uh, well, I'll ask for 100 and maybe I'll, I'll get as much as 50 yeah. So I asked for the 100 sold, and then because I knew his wife, he told me what he was paying the other speakers in the series, 1500 1600 Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And you might say, hey, he got a bargain with you. Well, he did, but I got something out of the bargain, too, because... We had a very good crowd, a very good response, and he was kind enough to send a very enthusiastic letter to the agent through whom he had booked the other speakers. Mm -hmm. And they booked me at a crucial talk, uh, Engineering Society of Detroit. I got 300 bucks, too, plus travel, so that was nice. But the interesting thing was I found out that they were sold out a week in advance for 1,008 people for dinner and a talk. And there wasn't one negative question. Now, this is not a bunch of little old ladies in tennis shoes. These are professional people. That was very, very encouraging. 
And then there was a second talk like that. I'm, you can see I'm leading up to something here. Okay, but yeah. in Pittsburgh, I convinced the chairman of a joint meeting of the local sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Institute of Electric and Electronic Engineers. Pittsburgh back then was a big research and development community, headquarters for Alcoa and Gulf Oil and Westinghouse and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I convinced the guy at work who was chairman of this joint meeting Hey, you ought to have me speak. I've been speaking to technical groups. I'd already spoken to several sections of the IEEE, Electrical Engineers, and the AIAA, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. I'm a member of that group. I said, all of the cost, you'll be, uh, you know, dinner for me and my wife and a babysitter. Sold. So, okay, we go to dinner. It's a weekday night, and I'm ready to crawl through the floor. There were 25 people at the restaurant across from the hall where I was supposed to speak, and I felt, oh, jeez. I told them I'd been getting good crowds and enthusiasm, and nobody. <laughs> we go across the street, and the place is already half full. We wound up with a packed house, about 400 people. Again, not no negative questions. I mean, I recognize my boss's boss's boss, three levels oh, wow. And now these are people I had to respect, mm -hmm. you know. So that was very encouraging to me. And so along the way here, as things are perking up in the speaking business and I'm working on nuclear rockets, I asked my boss, I said, you know, I need a statement from the company. What are the rules here? I don't want, I've got a mortgage, I got a house, I got a wife, I got a job, I got kids, yeah. uh, I got a security clearance. Uh, I don't want to lose my job, so give me the rules. Mm -hmm. So my boss goes to his boss. I don't know who the word eventually came down from. And they gave me three rules. These are interesting rules. The first was you can say what you please on your time. The second was you can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. And the third was we want you to start each lecture with a disclaimer. The views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. Now, who could ask for anything more than that? Yeah. You know, you hear about the professors who don't mention my name and don't tell anybody about me because I'm afraid of losing my job and all this stuff. Now, the company did do something more than that. One day I get a call from my counterpart in radiation shielding at the Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory in New Mexico. And Glenn says, Stan, how about giving your lecture to the local section of the American Nuclear Society? I said, fine, I'm a member of the American Nuclear Society. Uh, that would be great. He says, no, I mean on an expense account, Stan. I said, oh, I don't make those decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Go up to the boss's boss, et cetera. And they said, yes. So I went from Pittsburgh to Los Alamos, spent the day, gave a lecture, came back. Uh, on an expense account, and everybody knew what was going on. This was not, uh, well, we're going to talk about radiation shielding, and oh, by the way, I'll give a little lecture on the side. Yeah. And uh, they had over 500 people, which for them was a huge crowd. So, uh, and the same thing happened with an IEEE group of electrical engineers in Wilmington, uh, Delaware. Uh, they wanted me to come on an expense account, and the company said, yes, now, let's face it, Westinghouse is a corporate member of the American Nuclear Society and a corporate member of the American uh, of the Electrical uh, Engineering Organization. So, you know, it's not like they were fighting the current here, but yeah. still, 
They didn't have to be so helpful. And frankly, it was the very enthusiastic response of my professional colleagues all over the place. I spoke at engineering societies of Baltimore and Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, I was warned that there would be some uh, debunkers, what I now call noisy negativists. And again, they had a packed house and no negative questions. And had friends. I used to live in Cincinnati when I worked for GE, and they were invited as guests. And they said, look, you, we can watch any time, but we watch the audience. When you started, they were leaning forward like they were ready to pounce. After a few minutes, they relaxed, and after a few more minutes, they were nodding their head in agreement. <laughs> so that's it was these kinds of reactions that convinced me when the bottom fell out of the advanced nuclear <laughs> space systems business, as, as it certainly did, yeah. to go full-time lecturing. It wasn't crazy people. It wasn't religious nuts. It wasn't far-out people. And I've tried to continue the business of talking. I've talked to management clubs from McDonnell, Douglas, and Lockheed, and so forth. And the reason for going through all this spiel is so that people will recognize it's okay. I've given more than 700 lectures. I've had 11 uh, hecklers, two of whom were drunk. <laughs> now, you're going to get that many if you talk about sports, religion, politics, anything. Yeah. And if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, as Harry Truman said. You know. Exactly. So the early Stan Friedman was learning his trade, was getting a very good response, and uh, it's continued ever since. And, you know, part of it is that I make an effort to bring up the objections of the noisy negativists and demolish them. Yeah. I don't ignore them. Yeah. I don't talk past them. Uh, and I have open question and answer periods. In other words, no written questions where I can throw out the ones I don't want to answer. <laughs> and, you know, I get a good handle on my audiences, not only if they laugh at my jokes and stuff like that, but, you know, I, I speak uh, well-rehearsed extemporaneously. How's that? There you go. Um, I, don't, I don't read my papers. I do use slides, uh, and I... I'm most appreciative of the attention they pay. Nobody goes out screaming, oh, my God, they're going to get us. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Um, okay, now, and uh, let's hone in on one particular event here in your early years, and that is the 68 Congressional Committee on UFOs. Well, yeah, the Congressional Committee on Science and Aeronautics. And I had met earlier, uh, and he used to stop by in Pittsburgh when he was traveling through, Dr. James E. McDonald. Mm-hmm. We had a very active group in Pittsburgh, the UFO Research Institute of Pittsburgh, guys from Westinghouse and other places. We met at the board office in downtown Pittsburgh of the biggest uh, accounting firm in town, as a matter of fact. Respectable, you know. Yeah. And Jim McDonald stopped by several times. He allowed us to sell his paper, uh, International UFOs, uh, International Problems, something like that. Uh, and Jim had gotten hooked. He had been a sort of skeptic, as I had been certainly to begin with, but after a while he got convinced, and he started checking the Blue Book files and was astonished at all the good cases that had received no attention. Yeah. He used to fight with uh, J. Allen Hynek about that. Why hadn't Hynek said anything, you know? Anyway, Jim was going all over speaking to professional groups, he visited NICAP, found that they were doing good work, visited Project Blue Book, found out that they were doing lousy work. <laughs> and he 
made use of some connections. He was a professor of physics at the uh, Institute of Atmospheric Physics at the University of Arizona, uh, in Arizona, and very well respected. And you'd think atmospheric physics would be important to UFOs since most of the things that are cited are in the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about meteors or whatever, still you ought to know something about uh, atmospheric physics. And Jim managed to, through contacts in Washington, get the interest of a congressman from Indiana to set up hearings. He was on this committee of science and astronautics. And there were six guys who gave testimony in person. And then through my congressman in Pittsburgh... Uh, I managed to get added to that list of people who could make a contribution in writing. There were six of us in writing and six of us in person. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was the only one of the 12 without a Ph.D., incidentally. I'm proud of that, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) And it was quite a variety of backgrounds. There were some debunkers, Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, a Harvard University professor of astronomy who had written... Over the years, a total of three anti-UFO books and uh, was a power who influenced a lot of people. I mean, Harvard and astronomy, you know. Turns out later that apparently he was a member of the Operation Majestic 12, and he also did all kinds of classified work for the government. None of this was known at the time. Uh, Carl Sagan was a contributor, my University of Chicago classmate for three years. Uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was the scientific consultant of Project Blue Book, was a contributor. Dr. Robert M. L. Baker III analyzed a number of uh, pictures. Uh, there was a sociologist from Stanford, uh, Dr. James Harder, from University of California, Berkeley. It was just a, a great group of people, uh, even if he didn't agree with everybody. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the nothing much came out of the hearings except it provided a 240-some page volume of papers by real scientists uh, most of whom, certainly the positivists more than the negativists, had seriously looked at the evidence. And this had not really been done before. There were congressional hearings two years earlier, but they were very limited in scope. Secretary of the Air Force, a uh, guy named Brown, sat down and said, no, there's really nothing to it and that sort of thing. Yeah. But these hearings, and as a matter of fact, I am so impressed with the work of Jim McDonald. He committed suicide a couple of years later. Uh, it's a long story. And it's told in the excellent book about Jim uh, oh, Firestorm yeah. uh, by Ann Druffel. Anyway, uh, Jim's paper, when you print it in readable print in the original uh, volume, it's hard to read. It's very small print. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, it's available on my website at www.stantonfriedman.com. It's 71 pages long. He's got data on 41 separate cases, subdivided into six groups, each group dealing with one of the objections from the noisy negativists. You know, how come they're never seen over big cities? He gives you a bunch of big city cases. Oh. Well, why aren't they seen on radar? And he gives you half a dozen good radar cases. <laughs> and how come the professionals who watch the sky, meteorologists, astronomers, pilots, don't see UFOs? He gives you a bunch of sightings by those. 
So how come there's always only one witness where that witness is a kook, where you define kook as somebody who claims to have observed a UFO? Of course, he gives you a bunch of multiple witness sightings. So that paper, I tell people, if you want one paper that gives you a whole host of good sightings that he personally investigated, mm -hmm. uh, you talk to all the crew members on the RB-47 reconnaissance plane sighting over the Gulf of Mexico and then Texas and Oklahoma, for example. That paper will answer your objections because there are no good objections once you've read that paper. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's that was a turning point for me. It, I still, at every lecture, my standard college lecture, in other words, uh, flying saucers are real, illustrated with slides. At the beginning, I talk about five large-scale scientific studies, uh, and this is certainly one of them. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, you know, uh, obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got lots of data from professional people and spent lots of time. I get so sick of the research by proclamation from the nasty, noisy negativists. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan said, there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable, which is certainly true, and there are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, which is certainly true. But then he says, there are no interesting and reliable sightings, which is totally false. And Project Blue Book Special Report 14 showed that. Uh, the more reliable the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. That's significant information. And why he says what he says, I don't know. Alan Hynek once asked him about several cases, and in each case he said, well, he hadn't looked at that, hadn't looked at that. He just doesn't have time to dig into them. Well, darn it, if you haven't looked at the evidence, preface your remarks with, I don't know anything about this subject, but my personal opinion, you're all entitled to personal opinions, but professional opinions should require knowledge and ethics. Yeah. And I, when I check my audiences on these five large-scale scientific studies, Blue Book Special Report 14, these congressional hearings, Alan Hynek's book, The UFO Experience, the University of Colorado study, the Condon Report, so-called, mm -hmm. and the UFO evidence, I ask after each one, I show a slide, tell them what's in it. How many of you have read this? I'm lucky if I get one or two percent who've read any of them. Yeah. That helps keep down the number of hecklers, you see. Because, <laughs> well, I can come back to somebody, well, you haven't read any of this stuff, have you? I've done this twice. Oh, <laughs> well, no. I said, well, that's the difference between us, isn't it? <laughs> I, I give you my conclusions that some UFOs are alien spacecraft, that we're dealing with a cosmic water gate, that there aren't any good arguments against those conclusions. And you haven't looked at any of that evidence. So whose opinion is worth more? It's amazing how quick they shut up after that. <laughs> now, during this time, this is kind of like a sociological, in a way, question, but you, you were in the mix here, so you know. Well, what was the mood like in ufology uh, at the time of this 68 congressional committee? There was a lot of excitement. NICAP was going full tilt. Uh, there were, you know, it had been lots of good sightings. Uh, McDonald's addition to the fold, giving talks all over the place to professional groups certainly helped. I mean, how can you turn down a college professor, you know? Yeah. Uh, so the mood was good, but there was one thing that was uh, in the background. That was the fact that the Condon study was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you may have noticed I listed the Condon report as one of my five sources, good sources of data. Most people don't realize, you don't get past the Condon summary and conclusions of the first chapter, that 30% of the 117 cases they studied in detail 
could not be identified. Yeah. 30%. But the public word through the media, when the Condon report came out in early 69, was uh, nothing to, further to be learned about UFOs. Uh, scientific study shows no evidence for UFOs. Now the UFO nuts can join that other crazy group, the Flat Earth Society. That was in a California paper. Oh, man. And so there was a, this was in the transition period. Uh, things were looking great. And then uh, Condon put the kibosh on things. And, you know, to illustrate, and I, I won't go into all the things wrong with the Condon report. There are several good papers about that. But they have a whole chapter on government involvement in UFO investigations. Nowhere do they mention the largest study ever done for the government, Project Blue Book Special Report 14, even though it covered 3,201 sightings. They only covered 117. And even though I know Condon knew about it because I wrote him about it. And got an answer acknowledging my letter. So, you know, I, I would say that indicates maybe bias. I think so. Uh, just a little bit here and there. When the Condon Report came out, uh, like you said, it was sort of uh, like a death knell, really, for mainstream acceptance of ufology at the time, or, or severe blow. Yeah, a lot of people right. look back on that as uh, the turning point in, in ufology, and it really took a hit. Did yeah. the field feel it at the time? Was everyone like, this is disastrous? Well, there's no question that both APRO and NICAP membership lists fell rather quickly. Uh, the local sections were uh, having trouble. I, I must say this. In Pittsburgh, because our group had been so active with the media before the Condon Report came out, yeah. and because, believe it or not, I got my first copy from the producers of that radio program, Contact. They called me and said, Stan, we've been informed we're going to be getting an, uh, an early copy of the study. Uh, would you come on the program uh, and talk about it? Uh, sure, they allowed like three days. I didn't realize it was a 965-page book. <laughs> <laughs> but I did that. The press treated us fair in Pittsburgh. They... Uh, because I had the early copy, I was able to make cogent uh, statements about what was wrong with it and what was right about it. Um, but around the rest of the country, no, it, it was it was awful tough on uh, the groups, and things fell off very rapidly until the big wave in '73. Remember the uh, Hicks and Parker case down in Mississippi? Mm -hmm. That stirred things up. But you know, I have to say this. Uh, I spoke at, uh, well, a typical example might be East Carolina State University in 1968 in Greenville, North Carolina, population about 10,000. Mm -hmm. I spoke there. They had 2,000 people for my lecture. Wow. And, uh, you know, a packed house. And probably because there wasn't much to do in Greenville. <laughs> and, well, young people yeah. today may forget that there was a time when you got maybe three television stations, if you were lucky, four. Uh, there was no blockbusters down the street. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. There were no cable uh, channels. And so an outsider, an expert coming into town, uh, heck, in that case, the Junior Chamber of Commerce sold tickets for the series. Mine was the best attended, but, and no, I didn't get a cut of the take at the door. <laughs> but uh, what, what I'm saying is that I've always had a clear indication that there was great interest. As long as the sponsor 
stresses my professional background, nuclear physicist, degrees from University of Chicago, worked for GEGM, Westinghouse, household names. Uh, people will turn up if the sponsor is a university simply because, well, if he was a nut, they wouldn't have him. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm being an optimist here, but uh, that's the general attitude. You can't, if you're sponsored by the local nut society, people don't want to show up. They're afraid of being seen in public, you know. Yeah. So uh, I've always had uh, great crowds, much to the surprise usually of the campus people, and especially uh, drawing people from off campus. Uh, that surprise used to surprise the campuses. Well, they thought maybe their students would be interested. They didn't realize the town would be interested. And so things have gone through ups and downs. But, look, I spoke uh, at Pikes Peak Community College this past March in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. We, and that's the home of the Air Force, uh, you know, Air Defense Command or whatever the latest name of the organization is. And uh, there's a big Air Force presence there, presence there uh, Peterson Air Force Base and so forth. Anyway, uh, they did a lot of promotion. I got in a day early, did radio and television and stuff. We had to schedule a second lecture at the college. Wow. Uh, that same evening. They'd never had to do that before. It's not just me. It's the interest in the subject. Yeah, yeah. And people have seen me on television. That doesn't hurt. They see, they may not remember my name, but they see my picture. And, oh, yeah, I saw him on such and such, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was just this past March. So, you know, uh, the interest is there. But there's a real laughter curtain to be gotten through here. Yeah. Uh, it's illustrated by the fact that I once asked a college class of about 100 students. I often appear in classes on campus. Uh, I said, look, I want to find out your views about certain things, but I want them to be your views and not those of your classmates. I want you to vote with your eyes closed. And your instructor and I will count the votes. And to make a long story short, 80% of them thought most people didn't think there were UFOs, and 80% of that group did think there were UFOs. That's a big dichotomy there. However, people act on the basis of their perception of how other people will respond. Mm -hmm. The laughter curtain is real. When I ask at the end of my lectures, I find out the same thing. I get the first question. How many people here believe that they have seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer? And I've defined my terms early on. Yeah. And the hands go up reluctantly. You can see them. They know I'm not going to laugh yeah. but because I've already lambasted the noisy negativist. But I start counting and pointing a finger, one, two, three, four, so they know I've counted them, moving across the hall. By the time I get to the other side of the room, the hands go up much more readily because they know, hey, they're not the only one, yeah. typically. Typically, 10% believe they've seen a flying saucer. So if you say an average crowd of 500, that's 50 people. That's pretty good. But then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? And 90% of the hands go down. Yeah. And when I talk to people at my table later, my free list of books and they want me to autograph books and stuff, uh, I ask why they want to tell me about their sighting and uh, why didn't you report it? They think I was some kind of a nut. Now, I do get a second kind of response when I go through that. You know, for those, if there's still some people who did report, I'll say, how many of you were in the military at the time? 
if there's still some hands, I'll ask, uh, you want to tell us about it? And I get some great lines. I can't. They told me not to say anything. Not in front of 1,300 people at <laughs> a college in Texas. Uh, you know, I get, and some of them will say, well, I'll tell you about it later. I get some great reports that way. Yeah. So what I'm saying is the real situation is that most people at least are new, neutral and at best are believers. It's the non-believers who are in the minority. Yeah. But the perception is that, uh, gee, if you admit to being interested or having seen one, you're some kind of a nut. Well, these guys are with the cream of the crop, not at the bottom of the barrel. Exactly. And, exactly. you know, so I'm not, a, that's one of the reasons people say, you must get a hard time coming on so strong. I said, no, I don't, because uh, most people do accept. And I, I look upon, I mean, I get asked, hey, what do you do when you got a, a total uh, noisy negativist? I say, my approach is I'm not trying to reach those guys. Yeah. The extremists at both ends of the opinion uh, spectrum, the people say, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. They couldn't possibly be real, or they're here to save us. Neither one of those groups wants to listen to facts. I want to deal with facts and data. That's what physicists do. And so I don't gear my lecture toward convincing somebody who won't be convinced. What's the point? Exactly. You know, you're tilting at windmills. Mm-hmm. Now, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I wanted to explore it more, kind of like in the same uh, way that, like I said, you were in the mix at the time. Uh, the, the NICAP versus APRO feud and, and sort of their, the differences of opinion on how to go about uh, tackling the UFO phenomenon. Can you talk about some of the players in that situation? Because a lot of people who are coming along nowadays only know about MUFON, but I'm, I'm pretty fascinated with the early UFO groups myself. And I've always sort of been fascinated by this kind of feud and dichotomy between the two groups. So um, maybe just talk a little bit about NICAP versus APRO. Well, APRO was started by Coral and Jim Lorenzen. And Jim worked at one of the big astronomical facilities. Coral was the noisy one, if you will. <laughs> and they were more ready to listen to talk about um, alien beings, abductions, and so forth. Mm -hmm. NICAP, based in Washington, uh, Donald Kehoe had been a Marine Corps pilot. He flew with uh, Lindbergh. Uh, he had a lot of contacts inside the government. He was a writer, uh, and Coral was a writer. He wrote books. Uh, Kehoe sold better. You know, starting from Washington is a big help. The Lorenzans were in Tucson, Arizona, which back then wasn't much of a wasn't a big city. I was just there. It's a big city now, but yeah. it wasn't wasn't then. And so NICAP sort of took the view that there are these alien spacecraft flying around. The government's covering up what it knows, but there ain't nobody inside. I mean, it was kind of, you know, maybe they're remotely controlled or something. Yeah. But And so one of the big feuds was about the whole question of uh, alien beings. Mm -hmm. And NICAP got a little turning around because of the Betty and Barney Hill case. Uh, some of their people talked to Betty and Barney and uh, did, did some further looking along those lines. But they looked, NICAP was set up with these uh, investigative units all over the place, but Keyhole liked to control things. And our group in Pittsburgh was originally an NICAP subcommittee, as they called them. Yeah. And we finally declared our independence because the Home Office wanted to control what we said. Oh, wow. And we felt that dealing with the press in Pittsburgh, we were in a better position to make a judgment about that. We had a yeah. very good press. Uh, 
our, our approach to the press was basically, here are the facts, here's the data, here are the people that are active with us. And I often got calls after doing radio shows and stuff, you know, I heard you on the air, I'd like to help out. I didn't want to mix up with any nuts or anything, but I liked what you said, so how can I help? That kind of thing. Yeah. And so NICAP, uh, officially at least, was not very friendly to our wanting to be independent. <laughs> but who knows better than us, you know, how to deal with our local press. Exactly, yeah. Especially when we had so many professional people involved. Uh, I think three out of our four officers worked for Westinghouse kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and, and I should add, and maybe people realize this, but, you know, in Indianapolis, if you work for General Motors, you know, how much do you want as a loan for your, the house you want to buy? <laughs> and it was the same in Pittsburgh. Those are gold-plated credentials. And you got to take advantage of that. Yeah. You know, but the town respects the people who work in industry. And so uh, that was important to us. APRO was much more casually established, and they too wanted control, but from home. But, for example, Coral and uh, Coral Lorenzen called me uh, about the Betty Hill Star Map work because Marjorie Fish in Ohio wanted to talk to a scientist to sort of help her out to evaluate her work. She was looking at the map, building three-dimensional models and so forth. Coral called me, and it happened that because I was traveling so much, I was able to stop by in Ohio where Marjorie lived and look at her work, and I arranged for her to talk to Alan Hynek in Chicago, and I was there when she brought one of her models over and so forth. Uh, that wouldn't have happened with uh, NICAP. They were still kind of holding back on all this business with uh, aliens as opposed to alien spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. So there, there was certainly, and they would take pot shots at each other in their newsletter from time to time. Uh, it's kind of a shame because if they had worked together, it would have all moved forward yeah. much better. But And NICAP had more luck really in attracting uh, engineers and scientists, partly because of their Washington background and Jim McDonald's pushing. He, he knew the people at APRO, too, and helped out, but NICAP was much more behind him. Yeah. And so, you know, it, politics was part of it. Money was part of it. Neither one of them had much money. Uh, and, you know, what, what people forget is that, and we, we had lectures and so forth in Pittsburgh and sold stuff in order to raise money to do investigations. Yeah. We had a 24-hour answering service, you know, when that wasn't very common. Uh, you know, it, it cost you money to drive down to West Virginia to check on cases and stuff like that. Yeah. So there weren't many uh, grants around. That's <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the interesting stories that uh, it's kind of like a pet question we have here on the show, and I figure maybe you might know some more information about this and, and could shed some light on it, and that is the uh, now infamous missing APRO documents. Yeah, and I, you know, shed some light on that. There were there was a young couple. Uh, Heineck had moved down to Arizona when he retired at uh, Northwestern University, and uh, these people convinced him to get involved with them, kind of, and they would get the uh, filing cabinets and all that sort of stuff. And there have been subsequent discussions, and with the 
the Lorenzans had a son who got involved in these discussions someplace along the way. Mm-hmm. And QFOS was set up, the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, by, by Heineck, as a matter of fact. And they were supposed to get these files, and they never really did get them. And I wish I knew where they were, and if there's anybody listening who knows where they are, my uh, email address is on my website at www.sentenfreesend.com. But I don't have a good handle on what happened to them. There have been a lot of people chasing them. Uh, the NICAP files, a lot of them uh, Keyhole had, and a lot of those did go to QFOS in Chicago. And Dick Hall had some, too, who was uh, assistant director to Keyhole and who wrote that uh, the UFO evidence and 30 years later put out a, a, a much updated version, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the, uh, the, the missing APRO documents is a, is a mysterious, uh, yeah. mysterious aspect of the whole thing. The other big question we sort of ponder here on the show a lot, you kind of touched on it earlier, so uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, is the lack of young people gravitating towards ufology today. How are we going to get these people interested, and why do you think young people aren't gravitating towards ufology? Well, one of the big things that's changed in the last 30, 40 years um, is how the opportunities people have, the, the ways in which they can spend their time and their money. Yeah. I touched on that briefly by saying, you know, we used to have these huge crowds because there was nothing for them to do. Yeah. Well, the young generation has grown up in the computer age, and they're onto the Internet, and unfortunately they believe almost everything they read on there. <laughs> uh, and there isn't a loud noise. There isn't a gathering in. Now, MUFON may be changing that to some extent because uh, there's a new director coming in. He's just come in, as a matter of fact, Jim Carrion. Mm-hmm. He's a lot younger. He's full of ideas and enthusiasm, and maybe we can attract more of the young people, give special rates to attend the uh, national symposium that is held every year, get the local groups to make more of an effort to go to the local colleges. Yeah. Uh, we need a plan of action, in other words, and yeah. there are exceptions. I mean, look at John Greenwald. I think John may be all of 26 now, but he's certainly been at this uh, at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. He, he's got the website, The Black Vault. And if people want to see a lot of UFO documents, boy, they can sure find them there <laughs> from everybody and his brother. And I, I would like to see... Uh, how should I put this? If we could get the media, the young people in the media, to recognize that they've been hornswoggled over the years, yeah. that they've been taken in by the noisy negativists, the debunkers. I mean, unfortunately, you might say some of the debunkers are gone, too, so their voices aren't being heard as loudly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think it, it's a difficult problem, I think, that... Uh, what we need to do is make them aware that we want them to help. We need recruiting, that's yeah. all. Yeah. But it isn't as easy to recruit now because you're competing. It's like I tell colleges about my lecture. I say, you're not competing with another UFO lecture. There won't be one that night. <laughs> but you're competing with the Internet, mm-hmm. the movies, the television stations, the videos. Uh, so you have to make a lot more noise now to get interest, response, Somebody once wrote you, you had to find out about something six times before you decide you're going to go to it, you oh, know, wow. something different. And so uh, 
we need to reach out much more than we ever had to before. In Pittsburgh, we could get press attention because they knew us. Uh, when there was a big fuss about a sighting, we were the first to come up and say, no, that wasn't a flying saucer. It was a reentry of a spacecraft, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's on three. Um, but now there are too many things taking people's attention. Mm-hmm. And so we need parents to start pushing their kids in this direction, if you will, those of us who have kids, to let them know there's something exciting and interesting. And another part of the problem is we tend to be a self-censoring group because of this fear of ridicule. Yeah. There are many people who don't want to make waves. And I say, make all the waves you can. It's okay. <laughs> I've never had a tomato or an egg thrown at me. You know, uh, it's all right. And um, uh, speak out and express yourself, as somebody once said, Um and we need more of that, I'm afraid. I, you know, it's easy for me to say because I'm a Leo and I'm naturally a noisy guy. <laughs> but I'm trying to encourage other people to do the same thing. It's surprising. If you reach out to your fellow workers, let's say, yeah. or friends, you'd be amazed how many of them are interested but have never said anything. I've had that happen. People come to my lectures. Oh, hey, Joe, I didn't know you were interested. Oh, I've been interested for years. Didn't know you were interested. <laughs> That's what happens. So, you know, let me give my website again, www.stantonfriedman.com, and I'll offer my special radio package, my radio special. It's on the website under specials, but uh, both my books, Crash at Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, and Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C, and my CD-ROM, UFOs, The Real Story, that's $45 worth of stuff for only $35, and that includes priority mail shipping. They can get it through PayPal on the website or send me a check at Post Office Box 958, Holton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, M-E, 04730-0958. And if you know anything about pilots trying to shoot down UFOs, or pilots who were shot down by UFOs, or about Roswell, maybe a grandchild who says he's got a piece of wreckage, contact me. I want to hear. There you go. Let me ask you one quick follow-up on the pilot request, because I've heard you making this request for the last couple of years. What's the turnout been so far um, on this request for information on pilots missing? Gotten uh, several interesting responses. The most interesting was somebody who read my column in the MUFON Journal, uh, shoot them down or zapped, uh, zapped airplanes, I guess was the title of it. And he, he had a friend who was flying for the military in Europe in the early 50s, a college classmate of his. When he came back, he asked him, and all he would say was, uh, we lost 20 planes to UFOs. So I managed wow. to track down the guy's family. They're looking through records because I want to know what outfit he was in. He's deceased. But uh, that was one. I had another guy who said that in Washington after the big 52 wave of sightings, uh, this is where we found out that orders were given to pilots to shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. And there will be a new book out this year by Frank Faschino, for which I wrote the uh, forward and epilogue about that. But uh, a guy called me from served in Washington in the military at that time. He said they weren't only being scrambled in July, Stan. For the next year, we were scrambling jets. And he had a case to tell me of two pilots went up 
one came back. And all the person would say was, it went straight up, straight up. So uh, I'm looking for that sort of stuff. And, you know, we're racing the undertaker, but... Every little bit helps. Yeah, yeah. What uh, spawned your interest in the in the pilot aspect in general? Because uh, this, this well, is something new for you. Well, it, it, I've always been interested in pilots, but uh, it was when Frank Faschino's book, The Braxton County Monster, cover-up of the uh, Flatwoods Monster revealed, it drew some strong attacks from people who said, we were, there weren't any dogfights between UFOs and uh, our airplanes. So I got a couple people, Dr. David Rudiak and uh, Barry Greenwell, outstanding researchers, to look through their files. They had enough clippings to choke a horse with, <laughs> several horses. And we dug out the rest of these, and it was astonishing. We went back to the old books, books that I'd read back in the 60s, uh, and found more and more of these accounts. And so we collected a huge amount of stuff. And uh, that's what led to Frank's new book, uh, Shoot Them Down. And... It's it's scary sort of stuff. Yeah. And for those who think, how could they keep secret the fact that a plane was destroyed by a UFO, I recommend the book, By Any Means Necessary, by William Burroughs, which talks about the deaths of 166 crewmen of reconnaissance planes that were shot down by the Soviets as we probed uh, Russia, China, and North Korea back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. No word in public. Lies to the families until 2001. Uh, that's when they were told what had happened to their, you know, sons, brothers, fathers, uh, whatever. Uh, yes, they can keep these things secret. That's why I want to hear from more pilots. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Stan, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was great having you back. Uh, hopefully we can do this again next year and around the holidays sure. and, and keep, keep up the tradition going here. And, and uh, thank you very much for all your support for the show and everything. This is the third time we've had you on. And I could talk to you every holiday season till till the end of time, I think, uh, trying, <laughs> trying to go over all this great information and, and your vast history in the, in the field of ufology. It's been a real education for me. And uh, thanks again for being on the show. My, my pleasure. There you have it, folks. Thus concludes the 2006 Banal of America Audio Christmas special. Huge thanks to Stanton Friedman for coming back on the show and helping to make this a holiday tradition. You can find out more information on Stanton Friedman at his website, www.stantonfriedman.com, S-T-A-N-T-O-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Check it out. Lots of great information on there. Moving right along now, it's time for Ben All of America Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter comes from Nick in Portland, Oregon. Here's what he has to say. Tim, thanks for doing the interviews with the speakers from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. I really wanted to attend myself, but was unable to make it happen. Your interviews gave me a little taste of being there. And, in general, thanks for doing your show. B of A Audio is one of the best UFO-related podcasts out there, Keep up the great work. Your time and effort is much appreciated. Thanks, Nick in Portland, Oregon. Well, Nick, thank you very much for writing in. I appreciate the feedback, and I am truly humbled by your generous praise of the show. Uh, I'm very happy that you enjoyed the UFO CRC special episode. I was a little worried about how that edition of VOA Audio would go over with our listening audience, but it sounds like people really enjoyed the different format 
and the plethora of guests we managed to feature. Your impressions of this special were really the goal of our overall coverage of the conference. We really wanted to give a taste of the UFO CRC. We have a lot of great listeners that are pretty far away from Las Vegas and just couldn't make the trip out there. So what I wanted to do really was try and share the experience with all of you, and it sounds like we managed to accomplish that. As far as B of A Audio being one of the best UFO-related podcasts, all I can say really to that is thank you so much for your kind words. Don't you worry, Nick. I'm going to keep on doing my work. You just keep on listening, and the best is yet to come, I assure you. Thanks again for writing, and have a very happy holidays. If you would like to be a part of Banal of America Audio listener feedback, simply click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the banalofamerica.com website or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Wrapping up the show now, I want to give big thanks and happy holiday wishes to Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of banalofamerica.com for your tireless help and support with the website and the audio series. Without these fine folks, banalofamerica.com and banalofamerica audio would be a fraction of what it is today. Thank you so much for your help, guys. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. Banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. In addition to the gang at banalofamerica.com, I want to thank some of the websites that have been instrumental in getting the word out on Banal of America Audio, starting with Anomalous.com, DailyGrail.com, About.com's Paranormal Phenomena section, UFOReview.net, Wintersteel.com, RedIceCreations.com, RemoteCentral.blogspot.com, and PostAtomic.com. Those great sites have brought just so many people to the Banal of America audio program. Chances are you heard of us through one of those sites. So thank you very much to all of them. I consider them friends of Banal of America audio. Happy holidays to all of them as well. If you're a longtime Banal of America audio listener, an appreciative newcomer, or you're just filled to the brim with holiday spirit and you want to help support the audio series, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com. Make a donation. Every little bit helps. The cost of this audio program comes out of my pocket with help from generous Banal of America audio listeners. If you want to join that crew of generous listeners, simply click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com and make a donation. Next week on Banal of America Audio, it is going to be a groundbreaking interview with James Carrion, the new international director of MUFON. This last July, John Schusler stepped aside as director of MUFON turned the reins of the organization over to James Carrion. James stepped into the position in the beginning of December, a scant three weeks ago, and I sat down to talk with him about the state of MUFON today. Where does MUFON stand on some of the big issues in ufology? Where does he see MUFON going under his leadership? Exciting new initiatives that we can expect to see coming from MUFON in the next year. James answers the tough questions that many critics have about MUFON, and, of course, tons and tons more. We're going to cover a ton of ground here with soon-to-be one of the most influential people in all of ufology, James Carrion, the new International Director of MUFON. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. This is Tim Benal, wishing you happy holidays and a very Merry Christmas, and signing off. <laughs>